Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. It's Monday, July 29th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Ever since I was an undergraduate studying psychology, I've been fascinated by how our brains lead to the experience of being conscious. Of course, a lot of people have written about this, and there's been a lot of controversy both in the neuroscientific and the philosophical worlds. But sometimes it's good just to get back to the basics and to update the basics by what we know from what's changed in the last couple of decades. And I think especially as we've learned more and more about what happens when we meditate, I think it's an interesting way to look at the problem of consciousness if you, if you talk to someone who is an expert meditator. So this week's interview is with Annika Harris. She's a New York Times bestselling author of Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind. But she's also a master meditator. Well, those are my words, not hers, but it's something that she's thought a lot about and practiced a lot as well. Over the past few years, she's actually spent a lot of time helping neuroscientists and even physicists bring their ideas to light. And now she gets to have her say in her very own book. Annika Harris, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to be here. So this book is a little bit of a departure from your usual work. Um, so I want to start with kind of what you've been doing for the last 15 years or so, uh, helping scientists bring their ideas to light. T yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, the truth is, there's no usual work for me. I mean, I, I notice um, the thread throughout all the different things that I've been interested in and have pursued, but um, they, they can seem like they're, they're unrelated. Um, so my main work for the last 12 years has been working with scientists who write for the, for the general public. So um, mostly I've been editing books um, by scientists who are, who are writing accessible books for the general public. I've also helped um, coaching for accessible talks like TED Talks and, and that type of thing. And I've mostly worked with neuroscientists. Um, and so a lot of the ideas from this book have come from my work with neuroscientists. Although the truth is, this has been a lifelong um, fascination of mine. I have been thinking about consciousness for almost as long as I can remember and have been interested in it and reading about it. Um, so it's it's been 
exciting and wonderful to be able to work with neuroscientists um, and to be able to ask them all of the the endless questions I have. But yeah, this this book, um, in some ways, I've been working on it for about twelve years or so. I've been I've been keeping notes um, all this time and and mostly writing for myself. I find that. Um, the writing process helps me think through my ideas. And so, um, yeah, so so I, I actually began writing for myself and then found that there were friends that were interested in the topic and and it evolved from there. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about sort of the, the why now question. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, consciousness is something that neuroscientists and philosophers and psychologists have been interested for a long time. You know, there there seem to be these kinds of ebbs and flows of the general uh, layperson's interest in consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think right now is a particularly good time for, for people to reconsider their ideas? I think it may be an accidentally good time for me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think there actually are reasons why it's a good time now. Um, I did actually try to get some of my clients to write this book, um, you know, 10 years ago and, and even before that. And it just got to the point where I just realized that I, I was I was the one to write it. I think this type of book could have existed really at any time. Um, and the idea is just to make these ideas more accessible to the general public. Um Sorry, I kind of lost sight of your question. Yeah, no, I mean that's 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 sort of a, a, exactly the right answer in the sense that you know oh, what you what you've said is this is a timeless book, and and I agree with yeah. you. It's it, it reads like a primer for you know people who are interested in consciousness who want to delve a little bit more deeply than sort of you know your general kind of hey let's talk about um, kind of just streams of consciousness or or a particular model. Yeah, um, but, well, but I think there, there in some ways there are reasons for. Now and I think it's part of the reason why you know the publishing world was was so interested. And there are some other books um, on on similar topics coming out in the next few months as well. Um, I think AI is a natural artificial intelligence. As we make progress, I think that it becomes a natural question that keeps coming up there. Um, but in addition to that, you know, my book is really. Um, it focuses. On, it's about the the science and philosophy of consciousness, but it really focuses on. Um, why consciousness is one of the great mysteries and why it continues to be so perplexing to scientists. There, So in, in a- any area of knowledge or scientific breakthrough, um, it seems that in order to gain a deeper understanding of a more fundamental truth, it seems that this almost always, if not always, requires that we um, have to shake free of some human intuitions that we have that are misleading us. And so more than anything, my book is about challenging our intuitions. And I feel like that's really the next step. We've made um, we've made so much progress in neuroscience. And of course, there's so much more progress to be made. It's really still in its infancy. But as we make progress in neuroscience and we bump up against these things that are challenging our intuitions, I think we're, we're in an important time where... In, in any area of, of science, you know, I could give examples, everything from understanding that the earth is a sphere and not flat as it appears to us, or understanding the germ theory of disease, which was highly counterintuitive when it was first introduced and took people a long time to get their minds around. I think um, we're, there, there's always this period of time when we make these breakthroughs, um, you know, we're at this place right now, obviously, in, in quantum physics, where we just encounter nothing but intuition-breaking facts about the universe that we can practice, we barely can get our minds around. Um, and so there's this period where 
we gain new knowledge that clashes with our intuitions and and it takes us some time um, before we're able to let in the new information and let it shift our intuitions. I think our intuitions are capable of evolving, but also in some sense, we just have to let go of them and realize in some areas, particularly when we're understanding more fundamental truths about reality, they're just not useful um, for guiding us in, in some ways. I, I agree with you. And I, I think that's a, it's a really interesting way of, of putting this kind of particular time in perspective. Um, you know, sort of the, the, you know, people have been talking about how some of these intuitions are, are really faulty for a long time, and yet they persist. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, well, they're very, they're very strong. Yeah, and I think actually we have a tool coming down the pike. It's already here, but it's just not widely available yet. That will help people overcome these, uh, you know, false intuitions, and that's virtual reality. I'm specifically thinking about something like virtual embodiment, where all of a sudden, where you know, we think about um, consciousness as something that is unique and tied very much to us and who we are, and and that you know, it, it's it's part of our own identity, um, and as we can enter a, a virtual space and we can suddenly look in a mirror and see an avatar that looks very different from us um, and still behaves uh, exactly as we are behaving the way we would in a mirror, uh, I think that can really kind of change our sense of self and, and help us realize that, you know, consciousness is a kind of illusion. Mm, interesting. Um, just like the avatar is a kind of illusion. But anyway, we'll, we're, yeah. we're getting would, a bit ahead of ourselves. I disagree that consciousness is an illusion, but I think there are many, many um, illusions that inform our experience of consciousness and the way we see consciousness and some assumptions we make about it. Well, that's a really good point, actually. So, so let's start there. What are these intuitions, or can you can you sort mm -hmm. of give give us one or two examples uh, yeah. that you feel are 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 well known now to be false? Um, well, so the so the big ones are really the feeling of being a self, um, and the feeling of conscious will. And and I like to distinguish between free will and conscious will because I actually think they're slightly different things, and I think the semantics here are very important. Um, so by conscious will, you know, as assuming, I think as, as we all do, that the brain is a very complicated system um, that is interacting with its environment and itself and, you know, running all of these complicated processes um, for complex thought, for complex decision making. Um, it's a very complex system. In a sense, we can say that the brain has free will in the way that it process in, processes information, takes information in, um, and makes decisions based on its um, its processing. Conscious will is the feeling, and it's very similar to the feeling of self, but conscious will is the idea that consciousness itself, that your conscious experience is somehow the driving factor, is the thing that is making the decision. Um, and the illusion is really, it, um, this illusion of conscious will and self are um, really two sides of the same coin or, or par part of the same illusion in a sense, because um, it's this illusion that we all walk around with. And I, I myself am included in this, um, that as much as I know about the brain and I understand that everything I'm feeling and experiencing right now is due to um, something that's happening between my ears, right? There's this brain processing that's happening that's giving me this experience, um, even and and my abilities, my ability to walk, and e everything that I think of as me is a result of my brain processing. But I still have this intuition that 
I, I, and I don't, you know, the I that you can't actually point to anything that would be I, but somehow I, my conscious experience, can override the brain processing, can make a decision that is somehow separate from the physical world. Um, and so this is this is contained in the feeling of self. And I could also talk a little bit more about the term self because people use that in a variety of ways too. And I'm, I'm talking about the experience of being a self at a, ver- a very fundamental level. Um, yeah. So, that, well, let's unpack that a little bit because yeah. I think you're right. And I, and I think, you know, we're all guilty of kind of tossing it around in a way that is just not, not that helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So well, and, it, they're, yeah. and they're complicated. These mm-hmm. are all very complicated topics. But so most people, when they talk about self, they're kind of referring to an autobiographical self. So um, my autobiographical self is, you know, my name is Annika and I have two children and I like to write and, you know, all of these things that make up me, my memories. And that's that's kind of one level of self. But the self I'm talking about that's an illusion is actually deeper than that. And it's the sense that that there is a single solid entity that is doing the experiencing and that is making the decisions. And so even, you know, if I wake up tomorrow with amnesia and I can't remember my name and I can't remember anything about myself or who I am, I have no idea where I am, I still will be talking, I'll still be using the term I, I'll be saying to you, I can't remember my name, I don't know who I am. There's still an experience of self, of being this solid entity at the center of experience um, that, you know, we know now uh, from neuroscience that this this doesn't actually exist. And there are ways of um, training your attention to actually see right through this illusion as well. Um, and so me- meditation is, is one way to do that. But there's all this new research in um, psychedelic drugs being used for treatment-resistant depression and, and um, PTSD. Many people have the same experience that people have during meditation of kind of seeing through this illusion of self. And we think that one of the main reasons that's happening is because bo- both activity or the activity of meditation and being intoxicated by one of these psychedelic drugs um, quiets the default mode network, um, which is kind of where where that illusion is partly coming from. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that work. Um, and, you know, feel free to, if, if you've experimented yourself, I'm, I'm happy to yeah. hear about it too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I, you know, I, I just started reading Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And, and you know, and I know there's, there's, yeah, there's this resurgence of interest uh, in, in psychedelic research. Um, but I myself have never tried uh, hallucinogen in that sense. Um, so I don't know what it's like. And, and in, when I read a lot of these a lot of this work, a lot of these experiences, I, I still feel like there's a lot of people are really having trouble explaining uh, or pick, you know, ha- helping me understand what exactly what it's like without doing it. And there's a, a lot of kind of, hey, you know, you've, you've got to just do it before yeah, you can, you know, it, it definitely is like, that. <laughs> okay, so tell us, okay, so tell us a little <laughs> bit about like, you know, um, you know, maybe, you know, and, and I should say that there is some danger for people who have, say, um, you know, schizophrenia in their family. Yes. Um, you know, it could, it can trigger uh, the onset of the disease or, or the, you know, symptoms. Um, so it's not for everyone. There's some people who can no. never take those kinds of trips. So and the, t- the same is true for meditation, in fact. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, there are, oh. there are some people um, who, yeah, where, where their mental health is not stable enough and, and sitting for a long period of time practicing meditation can, can trigger 
So tell us a little bit about the work and 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 how it has influenced your um, thinking about the self. I think it's it's just that there are many points of experience, um, and it's it's similar to seeing through a visual illusion. It's like it's once it's been pointed out to you, you kind of see the mechanism of it pretty clearly. And even though you're shown that visual illusion over and over again, and it always looks to you, you know, whether it's a two-dimensional image that seems to be three-dimensional, you can't actually stop yourself um, from seeing it that way at first. But once you know that that's not a representation of reality, it becomes easier and easier to notice why this is an illusion and how the illusion is taking place. Um, so my many years of practicing meditation has just kind of given me the equivalent of, you know, studying visual illusions, but just on this illusion of, of self and conscious will. Um, and it just happens to correlate with the experiences that many people have on psychedelic drugs. And I actually don't know that much about the research. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but um, the one thing that I that I know in terms of what's happening at the level of the brain is that something similar is happening in meditation and when people are taking psychedelics, when they're having this experience of dropping this uh, sense of being, being a self. Every minute you spend updating your company's employee data and systems is a minute that you don't spend on your core job. Thankfully, now there's Rippling. It's the first platform that combines all your HR and IT systems together. And when you combine HR and IT, magic happens. Imagine if you could hire someone and take care of all their HR needs, including payroll, health insurance, and 401k in as little as 90 seconds. As someone who's about to start a new full-time position and having to go through all kinds of HR paperwork, I have to say, from the employee's perspective, this sounds amazing. Same goes for IT. You can order their computer, create their accounts, and all the apps you use like Gmail, GitHub, and Slack, all in one unified onboarding flow. That's how easy Rippling makes running your business. It's also why Rippling won PC Mag's Editor's Choice Award and is the top-rated HR and IT software on G2 Crowd. Stop burning valuable time on admin work. Use Rippling and your HR and IT will run like a well-oiled machine. If you're looking for an easier way to supercharge your employees, go to rippling.com minds and get 20% off. And if you're a new employee, maybe tell your employer that they should use Rippling so they don't even have to go through the hours and hours and hours of onboarding that await me, at least, at the end of this month. That's rippling.com minds for 20% off. I think for a lot of people that who who haven't gone down that road, who haven't had that experience, it seems very frightening. I mean, we kind of mm -hmm. hold on to our identity as at the very <clears throat> core of who we are, um, you know, and even the thought of our conscious selves dying when the rest of our biological bodies die, you know, is is very troublesome for yeah. a lot of people, right? Yeah. So, well, I um, would see, say, see those as two very different things. Um, yeah, and I so, see yeah. how the the idea of losing your sense of self when you haven't had the experience, um, I I totally see how that sounds scary. the The paradoxical thing is that it gives everyone I've ever heard of who's had it <laughs> um, the opposite experience. Um, it's mm -hmm. actually a, a, a deep experience of wellness and feeling that everything is okay. And in fact, the, the research um, on psychedelic 
um, th- drug use for therapies for people with terminal cancer. Um, uh, Michael Pollan talks a lot about this in his book, but the vast majority of them lose their fear of dying, actually, and have mm. a sense that they are kind of one with everything. And there, there's just a sense of inner peace that they get from losing the sense of self, that it's it's actually the opposite. So are you trading one illusion for another? Uh, what would the other illusion be? Uh, that you can somehow, that there's a, an essence of you that can go beyond the, the physical body. Oh, I don't think that's the realization. Um, okay. That's certainly not the realization I've had, and that's not what I hear people talking about. It, it's simply a a loss of the fear of death and the sense that everything we are that we're composed of that we are we're not separate individual selves um that we are kind of part of a a larger system um and that the self that is capable of so much suffering um the self you imagine that is going to die and disappear that that thing that you're holding on to wasn't actually there to begin with Hmm, I see. I see. But it do, it doesn't necessarily give people a sense that they will survive death or that their consciousness survives death. That that's not something. I'm sure some people make that interpretation, but that's not the general um report that you hear. But it's more that the thing that I thought was most important to me now no longer seems to be so important because, you know, we it's it's a choice to not suffer or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that that uh when myself feels threatened and I have this suffering, if there is no self, then I don't suffer. Is that is that is that in, in kind a of sense? Logic? In a sense, yeah. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit more about um, kind of the 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 kinds of false intuitions that we kind of walk around in, and um, you know, you, you've you've mentioned this coherent self uh, idea. Um, Let's talk a little bit too about control, uh, because I think mm-hmm. that that those are separable ideas, mm-hmm. even though they're yeah. related. Yeah. Um, and and maybe give us a few examples of how neuroscience or psychology has helped uh, pull the veil off the mm. idea that we are in control. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it goes back to Libet's work. I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, yeah, I don't although... know. I say Libet, but you know. It's... Okay. <laughs> I've never pronounced it that way. Of the, the three different ways I pronounce it, um, that work is 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 old enough now that um, it makes more sense to talk about newer work. And some of his work is controversial. Um, part of the reason his work was controversial is because it was um, researching gross motor movements, and many people, even people who accepted that there was something very interesting about the work he was doing, that he was he was reading um, there was reliable signal coming from EEG. Um, bef- prior to someone making a decision to make a gross motor movement. Even people who thought that that was very interesting and that cuts away a little bit at our sense of free will, many people thought that probably ju- wouldn't apply to a more complex decision-making process. And the most recent study I know about is um, from 2013. It's pretty interesting. They, um, they had people in fMRI scanners and they were asked to choose to either add or subtract two numbers together. I don't know if you heard about this study. Um, it doesn't sound familiar, but okay. keep going. So they they were given two numbers, 
and then they were supposed to um, kind of mark the point based on the, these letters that were. It's it's similar to the the work with um, Libet, where there's something like a second hand that the participant is watching, and they notice where it is, or they mark where it is when they've made the decision to move. So this is because they're in an FR, fMRI scanner, they are looking at a computer screen, and letters um, are, are flashing on the screen, and they they have to memorize which letter was on the screen when they made the decision to add or subtract. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they go, they go through with, with the addition or subtraction and they were able to tell reliably from fMRI signals up to four seconds before the person made the decision, um, when they would make the decision in time and whether they decided to add or subtract before the person w- had, had a conscious um, experience of making the decision, him or herself. So I guess these kinds of, and this is kind of my issue with with Lipe or, or uh, as as well, which is that how do you know, right? The only way that you can tell whether someone is now consciously making a decision is if they have some kind of action that you can measure. Yeah, well, it's but, all based on self-report, which is the problem with with studying consciousness. It's a hundred percent. Right. I mean, there, there's yeah, there's going yeah. to be a, a reaction time difference, um, even if, you know, even if like, you know, yeah, I, 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 I agree that the reaction time, you know, you can look at it, it's much smaller than, you know, in another task. So, you know, the, the delay between um, when the person is, is supposedly uh, thinking about consciousness and when they respond is still, you know, a smaller delay from 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 when um, I don't know if I'm I'm quite making sense, but I think you know. Yeah, no, I mean. no, no. <laughs> right, where it's not yeah. just about like you know the time it takes to press a button, but but I you know I I also you know I, th- I think this comes at a at a w- with a misunderstanding of of consciousness as being something that's binary that you're either conscious of something or you're not, and I think that you know a lot of the current theories of consciousness, Daniel Dennett's and so forth, really talk about you know levels of consciousness or streams of consciousness where I you know there isn't this mm-hmm. kind of on off switch, so. Well, I think I think there's both. Um, but wait, I was going to say something about. Oh, I, I was actually first. I was going to say. I usually try to say this up front that those um, that research I actually don't even think is necessary to prove the point, mm-hmm. because as long as you think brain processing is responsible for your experience, we can agree that the sense we have of being a self. I mean, there's also, there are other processes we know about, like binding processes that I I talk about in my book, um, where we know there is unconscious processing. And we know, you know, I am am not aware of, nor do I feel I have control over the digesting that's happening in my stomach right now, right? There are things that are just not rising to the level of consciousness that that we're not aware of. Um, But the idea that consciousness itself is driving behavior or somehow standing outside of brain processes um, is just logically incoherent. Yeah, um, yeah. So we almost don't need we almost don't need these studies to prove the point. Yeah, and even I mean, even if you think about people who um, we call split brain patients, people who have had uh, their corpus callosum severed, and you you know yeah you you ask them you you mention them in, in your book as well. You know, you sort of um, ask them a question that you know was processed, or the answer to it, or or the rea- or the action that they take, 
um, is a result of activity in the right hemisphere whose language abilities are not as advanced as the left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere will make up a story about why they didn't. And they don't say something like, well, you know, maybe my other self or, you know, they, they, don't, they don't have, they don't even have, see, they seem to have an awareness of, you know, yeah, of the, the actions of the right hemisphere. And yet they still feel that they have a coherent sense of self. Yeah, it's almost like conjoined twins. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Except one twin case. is mute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where do you hope people go from here after they've read your book um, and they've sort of had a, a, an opportunity to kind of shed some of these false intuitions? Um, what do you hope they take away from the book as a kind of understanding, a, a deeper understanding of their own thought processes? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the main reason I started turning this this writing that I was doing for myself into a book is because I realized that consciousness is a really underappreciated mystery. <laughs> and when it comes up in conversation with with friends of mine who are artists or writers or scientists, it doesn't, doesn't seem to matter who they are. This is an intrinsically fascinating subject. Um, and most people don't realize how mysterious it still is, even to scientists. And so um, I sometimes joke that I'm defending like the, the sibling of the great mysteries, um, that we are aware, everyone kind of gets it when we talk about black holes, when we talk about the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe, where did everything come from, um, just the vastness of the universe. There are certain topics that get us Im- immediately to experience the sense of awe and wonder um, in ways that we really enjoy and in ways that make us curious, in ways that I think um, foster learning and creativity. And there aren't that many people who realize that consciousness is kind of right up there with those other mysteries. And so mostly I just wanted to spread um, this, the joy I think we can experience in in thinking about it and contemplating it. Um, and there are so few um, books that are accessible on the topic. They're mostly academic books that are very hard to read. And so um, I really just wanted to to spread the mystery. Um, but I, I ended up having um, an ulterior motivation once I started getting deeper into the writing process um, and interviewing more scientists. Um, in my book, I talk about this range of theories um, in which um, people, some some scientists and philosophers postulate that it's possible that consciousness um, is in fact not the complex phenomenon we think it is, and it's possible that it's more simple and possibly even a more fundamental feature of matter. Um, and uh, kind of like a, an intrinsic, one, one of the many properties of matter, that it's an intrinsic property of matter. Um, and this is not necessarily something I subscribe to, but I, I think it's it's worth exploring. And as I was interviewing scientists for this part of the book, I, I became, I, I actually went out to about 10 or 12 different scientists who I thought would give me the harshest criticism on these types of theories. And what I discovered was that there were many scientists, mainstream, well-respected scientists, who are very open to these um, more creative solutions to the hard problem of consciousness. And almost none of them were willing willing to um, to discuss their views publicly. And whenever I see something like that in any area of life, in any area of life, but especially in the sciences, 
um, I feel like we need to do something. <laughs> and so um, a huge motivation at that point for me just became to help make this topic less taboo. And so, as I said, I think uh, I don't I don't know, you know, what will come of it. But I think if we are ever able as human beings to understand consciousness better, which we may not be able to, we just may not have brains that are capable of getting our minds around this, as as there are many things in, in quantum mechanics and, and physics that I think we're just not set up to understand. Um, but if we're able to gain a, a better understanding of what consciousness is, I think it will, um, one, require that we break through some of these intuitions or at least be open to, to breaking them, um, and that scientists are able to to think very creatively and to get funding for work um, that, you know, they feel like they can speak about publicly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the theory of evolution has completely shaped the way we f now think about any kind of biological organism or system. Uh, and so it applies to consciousness, right? There are going to be building blocks of consciousness in other animals, um, as, as we shared. And yet that's that's a kind of, you know, when, when, when a neuroscientist says that, um, it can make some people feel very nervous because, you know, it's a hard thing to prove. Um, but anytime you say, oh, here's a uniquely human characteristic that somehow has some relationship to, you know, cognition or consciousness, you know, someone out there will find an animal model analog. Right. <laughs> you know, you even yeah. talk about it, like the yeah. fungi in, or the, you know, the, the trees <laughs> yes. that, that, that communicate. I know. I was just, I was just going to bring that up because I, yeah, I, t I talk about plant behavior in my book a little bit, not because I think plants are conscious, but I, because I think it helps us shake free of some of our intuitions when we think we can cite behavior as evidence of consciousness. And yeah, it's, it's exactly what, what you're saying. Whenever we try to find something unique, um, and in this case, unique for what we think is required for consciousness, we can find something analogous or even not just analogous, but very close um, process that we, you know, we previously thought only human beings we're capable of. And I was just reading an article last night um, in the New York Times where they were sedating plants. <laughs> it was very interesting. And I, they, they were making some claim about consciousness, which I wouldn't make. And I, I don't think we know anything about whether it says something about consciousness, but just the mechanism by which um, we're given anesthesia, you know, for a for a surgery, for example, it turns out that plants respond very similarly to these drugs. And they they essentially go to sleep, um, whatever the equivalent of that is in a plant. And when the drug wears off, they kind of come back to life and start moving again. And um, so, yeah, a lot of the mechanisms by which we behave and um, process information are not that dissimilar even from plants, but obviously from other animals as well. So interesting. Like, I wonder if the plants also make bad jokes with their anesthesiologists. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to remind our listeners that Annika Harris's book, Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind, is available at booksellers everywhere. Annika, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blau, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgol, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. 
Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. Rippling is the first platform that combines all your HR and IT systems together. When you hire someone new, Rippling lets you take care of all their HR needs, including payroll, health insurance, and 401k in as little as 90 seconds. Same goes for IT. You can order their computer, create their accounts, and all the apps you use, like Gmail and Slack, in one unified onboarding flow. Get 20% off at rippling.com minds. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.